Uh, I've been receiving such good feedback on this series of lessons, and I thank you for that, especially, I think, in our home Bible study times where we can go a little deeper and make it more personal, and, and I appreciate that. I feel like we're all struggling this time of year with this election, with our country, and wondering how do we make sense of it all, and I'm hoping my prayers being by looking at Daniel in these uh, first several chapters It'll help us to remain grounded and remain true to the Lord and understand how do we live in a culture that does not hold our values and yet not hold them in contempt? How do we stand up for God without being obnoxious, uh, being difficult to, to be around? So we've been talking about using Daniel as an example of life hacks. Life hacks is just a winsome, creative way to deal with an everyday problem. So we've been opening with a few of those for each lesson. Um, with a wedding and marriage weekend this weekend, we've got, I think, 17 couples, 34 or so at the Chattanooga Choo Choo for the marriage couples retreat. And we're so grateful for that. I know two families had weddings this weekend, the Hevington family and um, the Irvin family. So I want to share a couple of wedding and, and marriage life hacks, if you will. So take notes if you think this might apply to you someday. I'll share uh, one for the ladies, uh, kind of oldie but goodie for having an outdoor wedding. Take your wedding program and turn it into a fan. Because if you make a program, it will become a fan if it's outdoors. So you might as well embrace the two. It's been around for a while, uh, but that's a good one. You know, when it comes to weddings, we don't want to waste money, but we don't want to appear cheap either. One dad, they were serving bottled water for their wedding. And so just to not make it bottled water, they got creative with some artsy duct tape and matched the wedding. And he felt really good about that and shared that with the world. Well, here's another one. How do you make sure that your husband doesn't forget your anniversary? Did you know there is such thing as a remember ring that you have a date engraved in it and it's set and programmed 24 hours before your anniversary, your ring starts getting hot. <laughs> and it reminds you that tomorrow's the day. Maybe you need that or maybe your other one needs that. One person said maybe the only thing better than that is a, a watch that would remind you of your wife's birthday and maybe uh, uh, garbage day and whatever else you wanted to program that too as well. Let me share one for the guys. Um, not so much a picture with a life hack, but something to some right words, not just deeds, right words are so good when it comes to marriage and being together. When you get married... There's that thing called a, a register for gifts, and your wife's going to want you, your wife-to-be is going to want you to go along, so go with her, and when you're picking out dishes, let me encourage you not to say, I don't care. Let me encourage you not to say, it doesn't matter to me. Go along with her, and, and look at all the choices, and then just say, I can't make up my mind, which way are you leaning? And then when she picks one, you can say, that's what I'm thinking too, and it's a win-win thing. Or when you come home from a long day at work... And look at your wife. Don't say, uh, why isn't dinner ready? You know this already. Say, how can I help with dinner? Or better yet, where can we go out to eat? A lot of good times where words matter a lot. A successful marriage, but also in Babylon. Words and deeds, if we're going to survive. And to honor God in Babylon, you might just need a stump speech. Not in the political sense of the word, but in the Daniel sense of the word. So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. You'll see what I mean by this. Daniel chapter 4. The verses are going to be on the screen, but you might rather read out of your own Bible. But first, let's kind of take a moment for context and kind of review where we've been in chapters 1, 2, and 3 leading up to this point. 
What you notice by quick review is that all through the book of Daniel, God has been pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. Sometimes we read the book and we think it's about Daniel. It's about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But what you see in Daniels 1, 2, and 3, and especially chapter 4, God's pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar had to take note that Daniel and his young uh, Jewish friends were much better off following their strict dietary uh, laws than the king's usual wise men. In chapter 2, he acknowledged it was the God of Daniel who was able to interpret the dream, to tell him his own dream and to interpret it. And then last week in chapter 3, after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego escaped to the heat of the fire, you remember that chapter ended with Nebuchadnezzar telling everybody, no other God can serve this way. So Neb has been flirting with the true God for three chapters. And we're not sure the timeline here, but for quite a while, flirting with God, but never quite ready to surrender. Which makes the start of chapter 4 even more surprising. Look how it opens. This is like a dream come true, or really a nightmare come true, because it's like Nebuchadnezzar is adoring God. Is that true? Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and following. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So what is this pagan king saying? And what is Neb writing in God's Bible? What is going on here? Simple. When God changes your life, you cannot not talk about it. And that's what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. God's been pursuing Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar has been in bondage to the very thing, the greatest single obstacle to come into salvation to God that anybody ever deals with. Pride. And you're going to see that as it unveils in this chapter. High on the list of things that Neb needed most was to learn that he was not most high. You're going to read that phrase several times, that title several times in this chapter. You know, there are many names for God, many titles for God. One of them is God most high. It happens, it appears six times in chapter four. Most high, if you think about it, remember your study of this name, Most high is the name or the title for God that you read demons would use to call on God. Remember when Jesus was here in the flesh in his earthly ministry, he'd come up with someone who was demon-possessed, and they would identify Jesus. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? Most high is the name that the demons used. And the the reasons the demons addressed Jesus this way It's because that was the title that Satan himself wanted to take. There's a prophecy in the book of Isaiah I want to call your attention to. It's aimed at a king, but behind it is another person in the prophecy that's directed to, and that's Satan. You probably remember this passage, Isaiah 14. Look in verse 12. Have you fallen from heaven? How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. 
I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the God most high. Satan was banished because he wanted to be the most high. And his fall was not unlike the fall that all of us struggle with. In fact, his fall became the fall of the very first man and woman. Remember that lie? You will be just like God. Wasn't that how he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden? Isaiah initially took up his taunt against the king in Babylon. In chapter 4, he mentions them by name, the king of Babylon, in verse 3. But it doesn't say which one. But history and the Bible tells us which king of Babylon was the most powerful. Which one reigned for the longest time. It's Nebuchadnezzar. The one in chapter 4. And what Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn is that he was not the most high. That's what we're going to see this chapter is all about. See, pride is much more. It's much more complex than just talking about yourself. It's more than just boasting and being arrogant. Pride, if you go deep with it, what it really is is just saying God doesn't exist. Or God doesn't matter. That's what pride is at its core. But God is not going to ignore even those who are ignoring him. Nebuchadnezzar seems to keep ignoring, keep ignoring, but God doesn't give up on him. In fact, what Nebuchadnezzar is about to experience is, as one commentary explained, the severe mercy of God. And it began with a dream come true, or really a nightmare come true. Let's keep reading Daniel 4. Look at verse 4. Nebuchadnezzar, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying on my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded all the wise men of Babylon to be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, the spirit of the holy gods is in him. It seems obvious to me, and you're probably thinking it also, like, why didn't you just call Daniel first? I mean, wasn't that many chapters ago that Daniel was the only one who not only could tell him the dream, but interpret the dream? A lot of reasons of that we don't know. Some just suggest that the call was put out for all of them to come, and that they came at different times depending on where they were, and the others tried before Daniel arrived on the scene. We don't really know. But what we do know is that Daniel is able to do it again. He had a dream, Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel told him what it meant. This giant tree, if you've read ahead, so big, so enormous, it's cut down, now it's just a stump. And then the metaphor kind of changes, it's no longer a tree, now it's a person, let him be drenched in dew, live with the animals. His mind changes from the mind of a man to the mind of an animal. Till seven times pass and he acknowledges that the Lord Most High is sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar had no idea what this meant. Daniel knew exactly what it meant. Nebuchadnezzar was confused. Daniel, you can imagine, his heart just sunk. So Daniel implores Nebuchadnezzar. Look in verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let this dream or its meaning alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. 
I want you to notice here again that Daniel gives respect to a king that's been holding up his God in contempt. And I want to share a statement that I've been sharing several times because again we see it. Daniel served God in Babylon. And Daniel served Babylon for God. When his king has this horrible dream that something terrible is going to happen to him, notice you get the idea that Daniel sincerely cared for the welfare of his king. May this happen to your enemies, your adversaries. He didn't want evil to come to Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted good to happen to him. And so he told him what many would say was not best for Daniel. You've heard the phrase, you to man? Daniel had the courage to say, you to tree. You're the tree. This dream is about you. And you're about to get stumped. It's not going to be pretty. I can only imagine the jaws dropping of everybody in the room who heard this. You don't talk to the king that way, especially Nebuchadnezzar. He's been known just to do a death sentence like that. This is who he is. But Daniel did just that. Look at chapter 4, verse 25. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the, is the decree of the Most High has issued against my Lord, the king. You'll be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle, be drenched in the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is the sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command will leave the stump of the tree with its roots, meaning that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Now, look closely. Because what you got there in verse 27, Daniel is about to tell the king what no one else ever had the courage to say. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. King, this doesn't have to come true. This doesn't have to be the way it is. Renounce your sins. You're going to make some big changes. But think about it. Who ever tells the king to renounce their sins? And put this in perspective too. This is the great Nebuchadnezzar. This is the king of Babylon. This is the one who not only scripture but history tells us about all the accomplishments. He was a most successful king. Very prominent. And when had Neb ever heard anybody to tell him, renounce your sins. See, much of this kingdom had been built by oppressing other people. Isn't that what Daniel said? Kind of you change your ways, being kind to the oppressed. See, it's one thing to tell somebody they're wrong, but it's something else to help them to know what to do about it. And Daniel had the courage to go from general revelation to very specific application. Daniel called Neb out on this for thinking too much of himself, not thinking enough of those little people, the ones that he had oppressed and built his empire. And don't you know the room got quiet? You don't talk like that to the king. So what's happening? What's happening in this whole story as it unfolds? This dream is God's gracious call to Nebuchadnezzar to repent. And God doesn't bluff. God never bluffs. And everything hinges on what kind of soil, what kind of heart 
Daniel, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar has. And if you notice here, maybe he initially believed, but you don't read anything happening. Kind of like he ignores Daniel. Look in verse 29. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the greatest Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And again, he was a successful king, so in a way, he was speaking truth. But notice, words still on his lips, verse 31. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from the people who will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what was, had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and the nails of the claw of the bird. In a flash, this mighty king who thought he was above everybody was even beneath the very people that he had oppressed. When you read that, you think, you know, he must have gone crazy. Out of his mind. I don't think so. I think Nebuchadnezzar was already crazy. I think God was sort of removing all the limitations and just revealing Nebuchadnezzar's true character and where it ends up when you stay that way. Like all who ignore God, Nebuchadnezzar spiritually was spiritually insane, if you will. When you ignore God and you think it all depends on you, you're not thinking straight. I think, I think we'd all agree with that. So God's judgment was just an acknowledge that the true condition for all those who do not acknowledge God. And Nebuchadnezzar has this moment of severe mercy. Because what Neb needed most was to get his thinking straight. Didn't happen automatically. It says seven times, and we don't know what that means exactly. It's easy to guess that means seven years, and maybe that's what it was. The Bible doesn't tell us. History doesn't tell us. In fact, the last 30 years of his reign, history didn't tell us much about what happened at all. So it's sort of a mystery. So it could be seven years, or seven, if you also know in Scripture, is the number that means perfection. So maybe just enough time, the perfect amount of time. But then again, how long does it take to be in that situation to realize what's happened? One author said it like this, the man who thought he was God had to become like an animal to understand that he was a human. And what a journey that he went through there. Like the prodigal son, he had to come to his senses. So God restores Nebuchadnezzar. So after three chapters of flirting, Nebuchadnezzar finally surrenders. Look in chapter 4, verse 34. At the end of that time, again, we're not sure what time that is, how long, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. So Nebuchadnezzar praises God for the capacity just to think clearly. To see how things really are. Isn't it amazing that a man that was once so full of pride, so once full of himself, wants to share this most humiliating experience? Why would he do that? Why would he tell everybody? Why would he write this that gets included in the Bible? See, I think Nebuchadnezzar would say the worst thing that ever happened to him was the best thing that ever happened to him. I knew what that's like. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. You don't wish it. You don't want it. 
But after you go through it, you think, yeah, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. You know you made a spiritual breakthrough with pride when you can tell your story without cleaning it up, without embellishing it. And Nebuchadnezzar, he just writes it. He just says it like it is. He's an open book. Here's this king who was so high and mighty, said that of himself, and talks about how degrading this experience was. So what mattered most to Neb was not what others thought of him, it's what others thought of the Most High God. So his motivation has changed. Look at verse 36. At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. If you don't think chapter 4 is about pride, he just spells it out right there. All those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Sometimes God will cut a tree down to save it. And that's exactly what he does to Nebuchadnezzar. I think God is still persistently pursuing the proud today. So how can we be like Daniel? If we're in Babylon, we're in a culture that does not hold our values, how can we learn from this? What are our life hacks? Let me share two with you. Because I think it's going to take both deeds and words. We're going to need to stump speech because we may be like Daniel, that person who has that moment of opportunity to say just the right thing at the right time. So we need to be prepared for that. So the first life hack is this. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. See, the problem with the Babylonians is not that they're so mean and wicked. They were just so proud. I think the same is true for Babylonians today, if we use that word in our context. And when you live in a life, a world that is God-less, then by default, by definition, it's going to be pride because that's really your two choices there Paul wrote about this to young Timothy he says people will be lovers of themselves lovers of money boastful proud and that whole paragraph that whole section is talking about the godless when you say no to God pride just comes in by default and you need a Daniel in your life that's going to help you think more sanely more clearly When Muhammad Ali was at his prime, considered just the greatest boxer that ever was, he would say the greatest that ever was, period. And, you know, that was kind of part of his persona. I mean, he was just bigger than life. One time he was taking a flight and he got on the airplane. The attendant came by and asked him to buckle up. He said, Superman doesn't need to buckle up. And the attendant very quickly said, Superman doesn't need a plane. You need to buckle up. See, every one of us Need somebody in our lives that's going to speak truth to us. But let me challenge you a bit on this. I think most of you, not, maybe all of you, love truth, want truth. That's why you're here. That's why you have a Bible in your lap. You love truth. But some people love truth, but they don't necessarily love the Babylonians. And this is where it gets harder. This is where it gets a little sticky. Think about it. Why is it that we post such scathing things 
on social media? Is that because we love the Babylonians? Or as one author says, we specialize in drive-by rants and confrontations. Speaking the truth in love is not about proving that you are right. It's about helping someone else become right with God. That's your motive for speaking the truth in love. And we know this comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul wrote these words, speaking the truth in love. But look at the context there. We will in all things grow up into Christ Jesus himself who is the head. Well, you want to be a completely committed follower of Jesus? You know, that's our mission. That's our calling. This is what it looks like. Be like Jesus. You speak the truth in love. And Jesus did just that. Because what we realize is that love is superficial if you don't speak those true words and tell the truth. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do, just like Daniel, is to say what nobody else has the courage to say. Is to love somebody enough to tell them what they need to hear. Everybody needs somebody in their lives who will at the appropriate time help deflate your ego, help recenter you on life. Like Denzel Washington, he told the story one time that he was promoting a movie, so he was being interviewed by Oprah Winfrey on her show, and he was bragging on his mom. His mom was such a, an anchor to him, such a support and encouragement to him. He said, one time I went home, and, and she kind of rebuked me for my pride. So I walked in the house one day feeling full of myself, and being a movie star, and I looked at her and said, did you ever think all of this was going to happen? He said, I wasn't ready for what she said next. She said, oh, please. She goes, first of all, you have no idea how many people were praying for you when you were a knucklehead. Now go wash my windows. Everybody needs a mom or a dad or a friend or a co-worker, somebody who will tell you what you hear, what you need to hear at the right time. Daniel gave a hard word to a man with a hard heart. And it had to be hard to wait. Twelve months before this even started, before he made the statement, and this started that process, and then this time, however long it was, to watch that happen to somebody that you care about. But you love people most by telling them about the Most High. Neb needed a stump speech. And Daniel was just the one. Let me call your attention to Isaiah 52, verse 7. Look at these words. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. What this world needs, what Babylon needs, is good news. Now, they don't know they need it necessarily. They may think everything's fine. Nebuchadnezzar thought everything was great. More than fine. But the story of Jesus is good news. And so words matter in Babylon. But they have to be backed up with the right deeds. So life hack number two. Seek a kingdom that will not make you crazy. Seek a kingdom that will not make you crazy. I think one of the hardest things about living in Babylon is that insanity is normal. No doubt everybody in earshot thought Daniel was crazy for speaking up and saying something. Nobody does that to the king. 
Daniel did. And Nebuchadnezzar, we know the story, was so grateful for that. See, it's so easy to be seduced by this crazy life. You look around and you think, I thought everybody thought that was wrong. And now nobody thinks that's wrong. I'm the only one who thinks that's wrong. And so we can get caught up in that. But look at these two verses. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Sound mind. A couple of chapters later, chapter 4, verse 5. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. A sound mind, clear mind, clear thinking. Be sane about it. That's what he's saying. Anybody here ever heard of the, the nation of Molossia? You ever heard of that? M-O-L-O-S-S-I-A, Molossia. Haven't heard of it? I hadn't either. And it's not surprising because it consists of Kevin Ball's three-bedroom house and about an acre, 1.3 acres, in a city called Dayton, Nevada, according to an article by Chicago Tribune. Kevin Ball has his own country, the Republic of Molossia. And if you don't mind, he'd rather you call him Your Excellency, Your High Excellency, Kevin Ball. Now, he's already petitioned Washington for them to recognize Molossia as its own country. He's waiting on a response. He refuses to pay taxes, although he does give foreign aid every year in April. The newspaper goes on to say, Ball, a 45-year-old father of two, is a micro-nationalist, one of the wacky band of do-it-yourself nation builders who raise flags over their front yards and declare their property to be, as Ball puts it, the kingdom of me. Now, to Kevin Ball, it's all fun. It's all just a jest. It's a, it's a joke, and he's having a good time with it. But he's joking about what all humans want to do, and that's build a kingdom of me. And that's Babylonia. And that's the message of our culture. Think about it. That's the message of politics. May I say that word for just a moment? So what can we do for you? And it will vote for what's good for me. That's the message. That's the way we think. That's the way we're told to think. But God challenges us on that. I think it's the reason why we're in such a mess. There's a little neb in all of us. There's a little neb in all of us. Neb was walking down his rooftop of his palace declaring how great he was. Now, if you go walking on your roof, we're going to think you are out of your mind. We don't do that. But let me ask you a question. Where's your rooftop? Where's the place or the area or the zone where you're most likely to ignore God? Where you can go hours and hours and not even think about it. What is your rooftop for you? To survive in Babylon, we have to be intentionally guarding against eccentricity. You know what that word means? To be eccentric? I think it means strange, you know, to be odd. And it does mean that. Odd, strange, in that it's off-center. Technically, that's what to be eccentric means. Off-center. Off-course a little bit. We need to make sure that we don't get off-centered by this crazy life. By living in Babylon. That's why you can't sleep at night. That's why you argue all the time. That's why you don't have a peaceful heart. 
why you worry. One of Jesus' favorite sermon topics was about the kingdom of God. Talked about it all the time. Here's what the kingdom looks like. Here's what the kingdom's like. Remember that? And then he would say the word, repent. He wasn't afraid to say the word. But it wasn't so much a rebuke. It was an invitation. Leave this crazy life. Leave this insane world. You want to know how to think? You want to know how to live? Let me tell you what it looks like, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is what it looks like. Everybody else is going to think you're crazy, but this is the most sane thing ever. Recenter on God. Neb was never more sane than when he began living for a kingdom that was bigger than his own. And that's why I go back and read chapter 4 again. I, Nebuchadnezzar, and he shouts it to everybody. Look what happened. Look what I said. And look what happened to me. And then listen to his words as he talks about the God Most High. And think about it, the only thing left of his testimony, and history tells us there was a lot, but the only thing remaining is what you've got in your lap right there. Daniel chapter 4. His words. His testimony. That's the only thing lasting. I think if Nebuchadnezzar could talk to us right now, he would say, stop the insanity. Get off the crazy train. Everybody's on it. Everybody thinks it's normal. It's not normal. And it's going to ruin you. So don't be a knucklehead. Don't be stumped. Take my word for it. So let me close with this. Kind of a little unusual way to close. But from time to time, I like to get an audience response. You know, sometimes we do that with Scripture. This won't be Scripture. This is something I think we all need to say. So just stay seated, if you will, and just raise your right hand. And I want you to repeat after me if you believe it. If you don't believe it, you don't need to repeat it. But if you believe it, I want you to say it like you mean it. I hereby resign the right to the throne. Okay, that was kind of pitiful. <laughs> Let me do that again. I hereby resign my right to the throne. A right that was never really mine in the first place. It's true, isn't it? It's true. Now, if that's not enough for you, maybe you can turn to your neighbor and just confess, I no longer think I should run the universe. <laughs> because there's only one ruler of the universe. And there's only one ruler of your heart. Only one. The pride problem is not a Nebuchadnezzar problem. It's not an Old Testament Daniel problem. It is a people problem. It is the absence of God problem. It's one of the hardest things to detect. You can see it in each other before you can see it in yourself. Nebuchadnezzar had no idea how off-centered he was. But Daniel loved him enough to speak the truth in love and to realize, let me give an invitation to get off the crazy train. Listen to God's Word. His way is right. It makes the most sense. And from Genesis to Revelation, that's the message. That's the good news. One last verse. Look at Psalm 57, verse 2. Maybe this could be our prayer. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. Can that be your prayer? I cry out to the God most high, to the God who fulfills His purpose 
for me. You want to know what you live for? There you are. That's it. That's what you live for. We're going to sing a song to encourage you. And if we can pray for you, maybe it's a pride problem. Maybe it's just a, you don't know what the problem is, but you know there's, you, your thinking's not right. That is not of God. God is not the author of confusion. He wants to set your thinking straight to be centered on Him. If we can help you with your baptism, if we can pray for you in any way, won't you come so we stand and sing?